Are you all sitting comfortably? <laughs> Not for long. <laughs> Hallelujah. So we're carrying on with Hebrews today. And Father, I pray that as we look into Hebrews 7, that you speak to our hearts and reveal your truth that you have for us today. Thank you, Lord. Amen. I was telling the, the crowd last night that I can never read Hebrews or study Hebrews without remembering my church in India when I lived in India. And it was a little kind of hut type church, quite strict, quite traditional. So it was men on this side, ladies on that side. And the pastor was very keen that everybody should bring their Bibles. So he'd always start his sermon with, Bibles up! And if he didn't see every hand go up, then he would begin his sermon by preaching about how you were always to have your Bibles with you. Otherwise you were, well, he'd lay it on pretty thick, I can tell you. But he was a lovely, lovely man of God. And I'll never forget Christmas Day at his house eating curried chicken in his house. Great guy, Pastor Philip. And one of the things I learned from Pastor Philip was that he knew the scripture back to front and inside out. So although he carried his Bible, he didn't really need to because he'd memorized huge chunks of the scripture that he could just rattle off like a machine gun. And he used to put us straight, you know, how dare you think that the grace of God is not sufficient for your sin? Rattle, 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 scripture, scripture, scripture. <laughs> you'd come away feeling like you'd been beaten up, but in a good way. <laughs> anyway, one of the things I learned from Pastor Philip that was, was that the book of Hebrews speaks to the discouraged. It's about encouragement for the discouraged. And it's not just comforting words. It's not just there, there. But as I say, Pastor Philip would tell you, it's also the boot when you need it. The boot up the backside. Or as some people would say, man up and get back out there. Bit of both. And the context was that this was before the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, as we've seen in previous weeks. And the guy running the Roman Empire at that time was a guy called Nero. And he was not a great guy to have in charge. You think we've got some funny people being elected? They were not in Nero's league, I can tell you that. He, it was at this time that the Colosseum was being built so that Christians could be fed to the lions and all that kind of thing. And he was a violent man with a violent hatred of Christians. He was the guy in charge. Strangely enough, though, his wife, a lady called Poppia, had a soft spot for the Jews. And according to Josephus, the historian, she was a deeply religious lady who urged Nero to show compassion towards the Jews. So that's the situation. Now imagine that you're a brand new Christian. You've just come to Christ from Jewish roots. So you've realized that Jesus is the Messiah and you have become a Christian. 
Then the Romans come and they say, are there any Christians here? The lions are hungry. Now, it's quite tempting at that point to say, oh, no, we're all Jews here. We're just good Hebrew people here. No Christians here. That was the dilemma that they were wrestling with. It seemed to them as if being a Hebrew was the safe option at that point. And there was a great temptation, so this is not so much about theology as about our own personal experience. The temptation was to go back to what they knew, or they thought they knew, was safe, traditional, solid religion. They could look at Jerusalem and they could see the temple that had been there for thousands of years. They could say, well, the Jewish religion has survived the Assyrians. It survived the Babylonians. It survived the Roman Empire. The temple has stood there as a symbol of our faith for as long as anybody can remember. And they were being asked to turn away from that to a brand new faith in Jesus Christ, untested, untried, unproven. To turn their back on the safety of their Jewish roots and step into something which they knew full well could end up with them being the lion's breakfast. Now that's a tough choice. That is as tough as it gets. So the book of Hebrews is, there's a lot of theology there, but it's also about self-preservation. Can I trust God in the storm? You know, one of the things that I was really blessed by with the guys from Bethel, and I'm so grateful that they came, and thank you to those who brought them here. But one of the things that really spoke to me was when they talk about not letting go of the, the rope of hope. And it put me in mind of uh, something that I'd experienced quite recently where I was out swimming around in Cullercoats Bay and there was a rope floating in the water. And I took hold of the rope and I tell you, if you take hold of a rope that's floating in the water and try and put any kind of force on that, it is absolutely insubstantial. And it's, you'd have to feel it for yourself to un really understand what I mean but you feel like you're grasping the wind. You can feel the rope in your hand, but you can pull on it and it just gives. There's nothing there at all in the way of support. And sometimes our Christian faith can feel a bit like that. We've got the rope in our hand, but when we pull on it, it just goes straight past us. And there's no resistance or support whatsoever we feel. That's how we can feel sometimes. But I want to tell you, God is on the end of that rope. <laughs> he is there. Take the slack and you'll find him. Now what these guys didn't know was that just a few short years later in AD 70, the temple was going to be utterly laid waste. They didn't know that then. And the book of Hebrews wrestles with that situation that they were in. Now we, with the benefit of hindsight, 2,000 years later, can look to our great buildings that have stood for thousands of years 
And we know that we have a God who is faithful and has been faithful to his people for 2,000 years. And the church has not only survived, but it's thrived and it's gone all around the world. In every country, in every tribe and tongue, you will find Christian people today. And it's thanks to the faithfulness of these early Christians who were prepared to say, even though I might end up on the lion's dinner plate, I am going to follow Jesus. The good news is that we know from that that the gospel works in all times and in all situations. It works in communist China. It worked in communist Russia. I can witness to that myself, having visited there. It works in the jungles of the Amazon. Some of us know that. It works in Egypt, across the Middle East. It works in Africa, and it works in Iceland. It even worked on the moon, because one of the two guys who first went to the moon was a Christian, and the first thing he did when he got on the moon was take communion. The gospel works in all times for all people and in all places. And we know that now. These guys didn't know that. For them, it was a leap of faith. Thank God that they had the courage to make it. Hebrews 1, verse 1. I'm just going to revise a couple of things. I'm not going to go through the whole six chapters. But Hebrews 1, 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past, to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hallelujah. That is Jesus. He is the brightness of the glory of God, and he is the express image of his person. Or, if you prefer, he is the radiance of his glory and the representation of his reality. That's our Jesus. I want to skip now to chapter 6 and do some quick revision from there. Verse 1, Hebrews 6, 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. So before we go into chapter 7, I will just want to whistle through those foundations one more time. Because there they are, right there, the basic principles of what it means to be a Christian. Number one, repentance from dead works. That's your first foundation right there. The first thing you need to do to follow Jesus is to turn away from your dead works, to give up living for yourself, and to realize that without Jesus in your life, 
All your achievements and accomplishments count for nothing. They mean nothing. If you are here last night, you'll know this already, but for those of you who don't, who weren't here, there are over 200 bodies on the top of Mount Everest. If you go up Mount Everest and you try to get to the top and you die, they just leave you there. It's too difficult to bring those bodies down. So by now there are over 200 of them up there. And as you walk or climb up Mount Everest, seeking to get to the top of the mountain, you have to go past all these dead bodies. That's weird, isn't it? It's weird to me. But what a picture of our dead works that is, isn't it? All of us trying to reach the top, climbing over the dead bodies to get there. The oldest guy up there, he's been up there 90 years now, plus 90 years, is a guy called George Mallory, one of the historical great mountaineers from the early days. And they asked him one time, George, why do you want to go and climb Mount Everest? And his answer was, because it's there. Well, we don't even know if he made it to the top. They found his body still up there, still perfectly preserved. Nobody even knows if he ever achieved his goal. What kind of destiny is that? Isn't it better to be living for the kingdom of God and have a God-given purpose and a God-given destiny to fulfill rather than setting your sights on something as empty as climbing a mountain? If you are a mountain climber, I'm sorry I'm not getting at you today. God bless you if that's your thing. Fantastic. Just go carefully. But you know, I personally would rather be rescuing the people at the bottom than striving to get to the top. Nepal is a very poor country. What good could we do if all that resource and all that effort and all that ingenuity was used for the benefit of the people of Nepal rather than striving to get to the top of the mountain. And I can tell you our good friend, De Wee Davy, who some of you know, he's out there right now. He was telling me the other day he'd had to ride all around this mountain on the back of a motorbike, and he was a bit sore from that. But he's out there building the kingdom of God, working with the local churches, a guy well into his 70s, some would say, Dave, you should be sitting there with your pipe and slippers. He's out there on the front line of the mission field working for the kingdom of God. I tell you, that's worth more in the kingdom than any mountaineering expedition. So we bless our dear brother Dave. Thank you, Lord. That's the first foundation. The second, verse 1, faith toward God. God can help you. If you turn to him in faith, he can save you. Jesus is our saviour. 
And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will have eternal life. Hallelujah. Third foundation is the doctrine of baptisms. Not going to say a lot about that today. But when we become a Christian, one of the first things we do is we get baptized in water as a symbol of the change that has been wrought in our heart. We go down into the waters of baptism, which represents our death in our old human flesh. And when we come up again out of the water, we come up as a new creation in Christ. And we have a new life. That's water baptism. If you've never tried it, I recommend it. Also, we're baptized with the Holy Spirit. Notice it's baptisms. So we are also baptized with the Holy Spirit. We are plunged into him just as we are plunged into the waters. When we come up, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We may well be speaking in tongues. We can live a spirit-filled life from that uh, baptism in the Holy Spirit. And that's great too. So if you've never been baptized in the Spirit, I recommend that. Come up at the end and we'll sort it out for you. Laying on of hands. Next foundation, when we pray, we often lay hands on people. Say, can I put a hand on you? We believe that when a Christian lays hands on anybody, Christian or non-Christian, then there is an impartation of the kingdom of God through the laying on of hands, and that person receives whatever they are needing from heaven. You can have hands laid on you, you can receive, you can also give it out. If you're a spirit-filled Christian, you can lay hands on the sick and they will get right, they will get well. Or whatever it is they need. The next is resurrection from the dead. This is a good one, isn't it? God is going to raise everybody from the dead. If you die in this life, the next thing you will hear is the voice of Jesus calling you up out of the grave. That's going to be great, isn't it? And you'll stand before him in a brand new resurrection body. Which brings us nicely on to the last one, which is eternal judgment. It says in Romans 14:12, each of us shall give an account of himself to God. So when God calls you out of the grave, that may come as a surprise to you. You thought you were going to just lie there as a non-entity. Suddenly, there you are. <gasps> back alive, standing before Jesus, and he's going to say to you, give me your account of your life. And for some of us, that's going to be a difficult conversation to have. And for some of us, it's going to be, Lord, you know me, I know you. And he's going to say, welcome in. Daniel 12.2 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. I don't know about you, but I want it to be everlasting life. Faith in Jesus is the key. Okay, so those are the foundations. That's the easy bit. Hopefully we're all okay with that. Now we know that we're moving beyond the foundations into the deeper waters as we go into chapter 7. And in fact, this chapter is one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted scriptures in the Bible. So I'm going to try and first of all unpack what it does mean, and then I'm going to try and unpack what it doesn't mean. Okay, 
That's the plan. So what does it mean? I'm not going to read the whole chapter uh, for the sake of time, but uh, let's just take a few verses from 6.19. I'll start there. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, being first translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. We'll stop there. Verse 4 there is probably the key to the chapter. So what's the backstory to this? Well, if you've read the book of Genesis, you'll know the answer to that. And the answer was that back in the days of Genesis, when Abraham was uh, camping around in the Promised Land, there were a couple of cities down there called Sodom and Gomorrah. And there were other kingdoms surrounding them. And one day, there was a battle between Sodom and Gomorrah and the other surrounding kingdoms. And Sodom and Gomorrah were on the losing side. They were defeated, and the neighboring kings took all the stuff, all the booty out of Sodom and Gomorrah and carried it away. Now, you may know that Sodom and Gomorrah don't receive a very good testimony in the scriptures. They were not great places. And Abraham, I'm quite sure, would not have got involved. It would have been of no concern to him what those guys were doing, how they were warring, or any, anything like that. He could have just sat the whole thing out. But for one important fact, which was that his nephew Lot lived in Sodom. If ever there was a bad choice of where to live, that was it. You might think you've moved into the neighbors from hell next door. It was worse for Lot. He really did have the neighbors from hell. And after the battle, Lot was taken prisoner and he was carried off with all his stuff too. So this is why Abraham gets engaged with it. He hears about Lot having been carried away, his nephew. And so he gets his guys, he's got a few guys with him, not a very big force, but they get themselves organized. They go off at night and they come across the victorious kings there's a battle, and they're able to rescue not only Lot, but all the other stuff as well, the whole lot. An incredible victory. I haven't got time 
to go into the details there. But if ever there was a miraculous victory in Scripture, this is it. A credible against the odds night attack victory, God gave them the deliverance. So here comes Abraham on his way back from the battle. He's got all the stuff that was taken. He's got Lot. He's got all of Lot's stuff. He's got all of the stuff from Sodom and Gomorrah. And he meets this mysterious priest, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek gives him bread and wine. That's interesting, isn't it? And let's just take a look at it. Genesis 14, 18. We'll pick it up there. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe of everything. Now what's going on here? Well, Melchizedek the priest of God, meets up with Abraham, gives him bread and wine, and he says to him, by the way, you do realize that God has given you this victory, don't you? And Abraham says, yes, I do. And as a proof of that, he gives Melchizedek a tenth of all this stuff that he's taken from the battle. It's saying, I realize God has done this for me and I'm giving you a tenth of all the stuff in recognition of that. Now, the interesting question is, what does he do with the 90%? And interestingly enough, the answer is, he gives it all back to the king of Sodom. In verse 23... Abraham says, I'll take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and I will not take anything that is yours in case you should say I've made Abraham rich. So what he's saying there is, look, king of Sodom, we're not allies, we're not friends. In fact, I want nothing to do with you and your lifestyle. So take all your stuff back. I don't want any of it. I don't want a shoelace from you. So what is the scripture saying from this in Hebrews, back in Hebrews? It's saying that Abraham gave the tithe to Melchizedek and Melchizedek blessed Abraham, therefore, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. That is what the scripture is establishing. So the next question is, who is Melchizedek? And the answer is, you're quite right, he is a type of Jesus. So you can see that in uh, Hebrews 7.3 where it talks about him without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. 
remains a priest continually. So when, when Abraham gave the tithe to Melchizedek, he was acknowledging the lordship of Jesus. Fantastic. Here's this guy who is the father of the Hebrew nation, that everything else follows from that, saying, Jesus, I give you my tithe because you are greater than I. So in many ways, that's the heart of Hebrews. They were Hebrews. They were Jewish people. Here, the writer is saying, Abraham comes under Jesus. And as we've seen in earlier chapters, you could write a strap line for Hebrews, which is Jesus is better than dot, dot, dot. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the Old Testament law. He's better than Abraham. And indeed, he's better than Levi. So that's that weird little bit in verse 5 where the writer says, well, you know, Levi was in the loins of Abraham at the time. So in a sense, he also gave tribute to Jesus. I'm not going to get into that <laughs> quite. But uh, it's a kind of weird thought, that, isn't it? Well, I find it so. <laughs> But there he was in his father's loins, giving the tithe. <laughs> yeah. So Jesus is not only greater than Abraham, the father of the faith, he's greater than Levi, the priest. And verse 12 is another key verse for us. For the priesthood being changed, of necessity, there is also a change in the law. That's good news, because we are not under the law of Levi, the law of Moses. We're under a different law because we have a different high priest. Our high priest is not descended from Aaron. Our high priest is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are all priests and kings to him, and we operate under a different law to the law of Moses. Now, what law do we operate under? Does anybody know? The covenant of love, the law of love. Exactly so. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law that we operate to. Did that come as a surprise? I hope not. <laughs> you seem a bit shell-shocked by that. <laughs> wow. See... In front of the school, the speed limit these days is 20 miles an hour, isn't it? So some boy racers, as soon as they see that 20 mile an hour sign, the foot goes down. And if they go past the school doing less than 40 miles an hour, they, it's a personal shame to them, isn't it? They break the law. The law means nothing to them. Other people see that 20 mile an hour sign, slam on the brakes, creep past complaining about the government bringing in all these laws, blah, blah, blah. But they do obey the law. They do it grudgingly, but they do obey the law. Other people think, hang on a minute, that's a school there, lots of little kids running across the road, I better slow down. Oh, look, there's a 20 mile an hour sign, 
good, that means I'm doing it right. That's the difference between the law of Moses and the law of Jesus. In, under the law of Moses, they had to do it. Under the law of Jesus, we want to do it. And the law backs us up. So, verse 9 here is a favorite for those who preach on tithing. And if you've ever heard a sermon on tithing, you'll have heard Hebrews 7.9, where it's often used as an argument that Christians should pay the tithe. Now, at this point, I will say that I do tithe, and I do tithe to this church, and I'm happy to do so. So what that means for me personally is one day in ten, I'm not working for my own sake, I'm working for the church. Every Monday, every other Monday actually. So inorganic chemistry is to the Lord. <laughs> That's the way I do it. But it's not because I'm slaving away under the Old Testament law of tithing. Rather, it's because the law of love compels me towards generosity. And the Bible gives me a framework of how to do that. Let's look at Malachi 3, 8 to 10. Here's a great one for you, if you like guilt and condemnation. <laughs> You're going to love this one. Malachi 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? I really need to grow my beard a bit for this, don't I? Will a man rob God? But you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse. For you have robbed me even to this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. <laughs> if they didn't tithe, which they didn't, by the way, because they were like those people who put the foot down when they see the speed sign, they were cursed with a curse. That's not good, is it? I don't want to be cursed with a curse. And some Christians, I've got to tell you, have labored for years feeling that they're cursed with a curse. When they read a verse like that, zonk, it goes straight into their condemnation bucket. And there they are, laboring, cursed with a curse. So I want to tell you today, if you feel that you are cursed with a curse, you are not. If you are in Christ Jesus, you don't believe me? Galatians 3.13. Galatians 3.13, where are you? Here you are. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are not cursed with the curse of the law. He has become a curse for you, that you might be redeemed from the curse of the law. Is that sinking in? Or do I have to go at it again? Okay, all right. In fact, tithing is mentioned seven times and seven times only in the New Testament. Four of them are in this chapter in Hebrews. We've seen that the message of Hebrews is not that we should all be paying a tithe as under the law, but that Jesus is greater than that whole system. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Levi. The other three mentions of tithing are from the lips of Jesus, where he condemns the people doing the tithing. Matthew 23, 23, Luke eleven forty two, Luke 18, 12. You're tithing your mint and dill, and you're forgetting the poor and needy, is the essence of what he's saying. So tithing actually does not get a great rap from Jesus. Each time he mentions it, it's to condemn the people doing the tithing. Tithing will never make you right with God. I don't care if you faithfully tithe down to the last halfpenny. That's never going to put you right with God if you're doing it under the old covenant law. So why should we tithe? And like I say, I do tithe. Well, we've seen the first answer right there in Malachi. Snip back to Malachi. For those of you who missed it because you were feeling guilty, let's take a look at the end of that. Verse 10. You laugh, it gives you away, you know. <laughs> Try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. The curse is taken away, the blessing still stands. Fantastic. We can enjoy the blessing of Malachi. If we tackle that verse with faith, we can enjoy the blessing of Malachi. And indeed we do. You know, one of the big complaints we have here in this church is, I couldn't get a seat. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? I couldn't get a seat. Why is that? Well, because God has opened the windows of heaven and he's poured out so much blessing that we can't contain it. We can't get you all in to enjoy the blessing that God is pouring out. Fantastic. Why? Because faithful people have sowed into this church for years with their tithing and their offerings. Fantastic. So we enjoy the blessing of Malachi here, the curse Jesus has taken for us. Fantastic. How am I doing? Not very well. <laughs> Here's another great reason to tithe, and this is my personal favorite, so I'm going to get this in. Genesis 28. Verse 20, here's the delinquent Jacob, the runaway swindler, 
having ripped off royally his brother, he's now hiding out in the desert and he has a fantastic encounter with God. And this is his response in Genesis 28, 20. Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. For Jacob, a young man, not a great guy in many ways, but as he begins to understand the God of the universe is interested in me, and he loves me, what's his response? God, you get a tenth of everything. It was about relationship, not about the law. It's about, God, I want to get close to you. This is going to help me to do that. That's a fantastic reason to be tithing. So put your hand on your wallet. Pray after me. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have freed me from the curse of the tithe. Please give me a generous heart. That's what we need. I'm going to skip a little bit here. You're not under any compulsion of the law to tithe. But in the New Testament, what you will find is an exhortation to generosity. We must be generous people. We must give above and beyond the standards of this world. You can see that in so many scriptures, I'm not even going to rattle through them. Now the world knows that, and the world will have your money if it can. So I've got to tell you that just two pounds a week will not solve the world's problems in spite of what you hear on your television set. Just two pounds a week, we'll do this, we'll do that, it will solve every problem. No, it won't. We need bigger guns and heavier lifting than two pounds a week. And what I do urge you is to be careful where you put your money. When you give, be careful. Personally, I won't give to any charity where the managing director of that charity is earning more than the prime minister. And you can find out how much they earn quite easily and you'd be amazed if you look into that. Certainly any charity that advertises on the television, that costs big money. And two pounds a week won't buy you half a second of television advertising. So be careful where you sow your seed. Personally, I like to sow into works that I have a relationship with, people that I know, and above all, into the church. Why should you give to the church? We need your money. <laughs> because we need the money. <laughs> That's the best reason I can give you.
We need the money. We have two full-time pastors here. I think they do a fantastic job. They work as a team. And they achieve amazing things. I'm continually amazed by what I hear these guys have been up to. God bless you both. And by the way, their wives don't get paid. Think about that. Maybe we should change that. Both of these guys have sacrificed their careers to service here. They've both been highly successful in what they were doing in the secular world. They've given that up. That's a tough call to make. You know, when I was a student, living by faith meant basically you were hanging around with other Christians hoping they would feed you. <laughs> These guys have taken it to a whole different level, I can tell you. And we need to honor them. Even the gas bill here would give you pause for thought. <laughs> not so much since we fixed the boiler, but even so, this place does not run on thin air. We need your money. Now, if you're here last night, keep quiet. <laughs> but let's suppose that we said, okay, we'll get rid of the offering bowl. Well, we don't have one anyway, do we? Get rid of the tithe box. No more tithing. Forget all that. We'll just sell tickets on the door. All right? <laughs> so if you've got a ministry of selling tickets, come and see us afterwards. Let's suppose that we did that. How much do you think it would cost you to buy a ticket to come here and enjoy a service? One five or five oh was that? Five hours. That's a little bit high. They were better last night. It is about 20 pounds. 20 pounds a ticket. And interestingly enough, one of our parishioners, after hearing this message, as she was cycling home, found a 20 pound note on the pavement. I kid you not. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. A season ticket, about a thousand pounds a year, will get you a season ticket. Now, we're not going to do that. Okay. <laughs> Although, actually, that idea seems to have got more traction than I expected. <laughs> Watch this space. <laughs> but at the moment, we don't have any plans to do that. Okay. But that's the reality. Just to keep the lights on and keep this place ticking over, it's about £20 each per meeting. And actually, if you work back and you think an average-sized family with an average income, the tithe is about right. It's surprisingly close to what it needs to be. So tithing is simple too. <laughs> so where does that leave us all? Well, you've heard so many words about tithing that they just bounce off you. So that's why I'm trying to come underneath today. <laughs> if you are genuinely poor and you don't have two halfpennies to rub together, and you have to choose between heating and eating, you're welcome here. And if you never put a penny in the offering box, you are welcome, and you will always be welcome in this church. The gospel of Jesus 
is received free to the poor. That is the gospel. The poor hear the good news. So if that's you, you're welcome. Don't feel any guilt or shame about your poverty. You're welcome. And I believe that God will work with you and bring you out of your poverty if you work with him. And you can put more in that box than the rest of us anyway, because Jesus said that, didn't he, about the woman who put in the two copper coins. She's put in more than the lot of you. So you can hold your head high if that's you. Now, people are all different, so that might not be you. But maybe you've been for years involved in some mission somewhere, so you give every penny that you can to feed children in Africa or whatever it might be. Great. Fantastic. Good for you. God bless you in that. As you do that, please remember, if you don't give anything to this church, that other people are subsidizing you to be here to the tune of about 20 pounds a week. Now, if that sits right with you, because you've looked into the eyes of those kids, God bless you too. The reality is most of us are not in either of those camps, are we? We're somewhere else. And most of us are not that kind of com have that kind of commitment. So if you're kind of normal, so you're a <laughs> normal person. Yeah, there might be a few. There might be one or two. We need you to give to this church. And let me tell you, we want to do more than just keep the lights on. We want to go beyond that. And to do that, we need heavy lifting. We're going to need money to do that. You know, stuff costs. We've got some plans and visions, but to do that, we'll need money, and we'll need your money. If you're not regularly giving to this church when you could be, that means other people are paying for you to enjoy being here. And some of them, let me tell you, are really struggling to do that. They're the ones who are committed to giving, even though for them it might be a hard choice. So if you're well off and you're letting other people subsidize you for your life in this church, you need to think about that, I submit. That's the heavy word. The good news is that we are solvent as a church. We own this building. We pay our bills. And it's through the faithfulness of those who give in regularly and are committed to do that. So put your hand on your wallet again. <laughs> Lord, Jesus, Lord Jesus, thank you that you have freed me from the curse of the tithe. Please give me a generous heart and may this wallet be opened for your glory. <laughs> Amen.